listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident ancient Greek literature person and language specialist. And I'm Allison, um, your classical archaeologist and late antique scholar. And today we are talking about The River Through Rome, a uh, recently released novel by Nicholas Nicastro. And in fact, this is a very special episode because we have the author himself with us today to talk about his book. Hi, Nick. Hi. Hi, Allison. Hi, uh, Julia. We're super excited to have you here to tell us about this book and to talk about it with us. Uh, both of us read it recently and, and really, um, I mean, okay. So like spoilers, enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> We will, we will get to the like, did you like it section of our podcast in a minute. But before we get into that, do you want to briefly maybe introduce yourself? And also, if you would like, give us a summary of the book. Sure. Um, like a lot of people today, I've, I've sort of had several careers. I actually also uh, have a background in classical archaeology and anthropology at Cornell. I uh, got a master's in archaeology, uh, went into an anthropology program there for a while. I switched over to psychology. I taught at Cornell for uh, several years, then went into writing full-time. I've always had a fascination with, with history, with portraying history, with time traveling. So um, I, um, my first novel that I published was in 1999, and since then I've been doing, uh, I've been sort of going between two main periods, uh, classical antiquity and uh, sort of Victorian true crime. And the first book I did on classical antiquity is uh, Empire of Ashes, which was published in 2004, right around the time that uh, the Oliver Stone movie came out on Alexander the Great. I was going to say Alexander, right? <laughs> we haven't done an episode on that one yet. It's on the list. Yeah, the genesis of, of that project was was basically I was hired to by by Penguin to write a book on Alexander. They didn't have any requirements. They said just write anything you want about Alexander. It doesn't really matter. So I produced a very sort of iconoclastic sort of approach to Alexander, sort of taking it from a portrayal of, of a, someone who was skeptical of him and uh, his legend, and so. It, you know, it got it got a lot. It got, it got a lot of responses. Um, some some a lot of haters. Some a lot you know a lot of likers. Also, uh, the next one after that was um, Isle of Stone, which was about uh, an episode in the Peloponnesian War, a uh, famous episode where uh, 300 Spartans were trapped on an island by the Athenian navy, and it was a story I'd always wanted to to, to sort of do an extended treatment of. Um, and again, it was sort of approaching the Spartans as in, in a sort of more realistic fashion. Um, we have a lot of idealization of Spartans um, in the popular media, like in movies like 300, uh, Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, uh, that portrayed Spartans as these sort of proto-freedom fighters uh, for Western values, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which I always thought was preposterous because the Spartans were a totalitarian society with a secret police and a subjugated, permanently subjugated population of Greeks. Uh, uh, and so the idea of them being the exemplars of 
Western civilization was extremely bizarre to me. Or uh, as as we often put it on the podcast, Western civilization, woo! <laughs> the Great Mirage. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the emo- I mean, just like with Alexander, the emotional connection to to that image is extremely strong. So yeah, yeah, when you question it, um, people get emotional. People get very upset. And again, that book has gotten. It still sells really well um, since it was published in 2005. Um, so it's still selling. Um, but again, it's sort of taken as a sort of an anti sort of a, a corrective to some of those other, you know, the Spartan Mirage, as Paul yes. Cartlidge calls it. Yeah. Uh, and um, so after that, uh, a couple of years later, I did Antigone's Wake, which is based on a very little known episode in a war before the Peloponnesian War that Athens fought, where uh, the uh, playwright Sophocles was elected as a general and fought in a war, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was sort of like, I mean, by modern standards, it's sort of like, what if Norman Mailer was made Joint Chiefs of Staff and put in charge of the war in Vietnam for a period of time? It's that bizarre by modern standards. Though though not so bizarre by ancient standards, because, you know, many, many people in in classical Athens, of course, their their population of capable and uh, high-ranking citizen men was not that large. So many of them, particularly the most recognizable, wore many hats. Exactly. And also it was sort of seen as, uh, and this just carried on, I think, also into Roman times is, you know, if you're if you're a if you're a fully functioning man, you, the martial that virtues come with the territory. It's yes. not like separated those. Uh, you did your time in the army. Uh, and so, of course, you can serve as a general. Anyway, uh, what was interesting to me about that project was sort of it was right at the height of the Iraq war. <laughs> And we were dealing with the uh, the mess of that and the occupation. And um, so the idea of Athens as a democracy invading and occupying the island of Samos, mm-hmm. which was a recalcitrant ally at the time, a uh, reluctant ally, uh, I thought was very interesting. And then finally, the last, the, 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 um, uh, 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 the river through Rome is, I've always wanted to do a Roman book. Uh, Rome is sort of, is in my blood, you know. I've been there many times, communed with the with the stones many times myself, and I always wanted to do something set in that period. What turned out was actually surprised me. I think because because I think typically Roman books tend to be a, a large scale. People want to have battles. They want to have, you know, some of the big names of in in the Roman history there. You know, sort of clashing on the floor of the Senate or. And it ended up being more of a sort of a medium scale story of the kind of figure in Roman history that kind of gets overlooked. And that's sort of the professional class, uh, in this case, an engineer who was hired to, uh, well, assigned by Agrippa right up before uh, Augustus, you know, became emperor, so to speak. Before, before Augustus really becomes Augustus, as the case may be. A few years before, it was after the defeat of, of uh, actually, no, in the book, actually, the, the um, Actium is a little bit in the future. But basically, um, it's before the empire sort of really gets off the ground. And um, Agrippa hires my character, Nonius, to build a, um, an aqueduct into a, an area of Rome in the Subura, 
which is a kind of a underserved area, a slum. And I was fascinated by the idea of just sort of doing something on a sort of a fine scale, doing something about Roman society that was not, you know, up in an upper, among the upper class, you know, elite. What was it like to be a person working in the streets of Rome? What was it like walking around the streets of Rome at this period, this very sort of key period? So the book also, you know, obviously is set at the end of the Republic, you know, very consciously because, you know, we're all facing now this question of, do we want to have a republic anymore in this country, in, in America? We're sort of, mm-hmm. we're debating this, I think, right now, whether or not we're doing it explicitly. Often when, when we have these kinds of questions, people don't pose it that way to themselves. What they pose it as is, what values are important to me? Um, is the value of self-government, you know, the traditional virtues, what we're valuing? Or in some cases, people are valuing um, blood and blood and blood and soil nationalism, us versus them, uh, protecting our rights. Who are the real Americans? So, in a sense, I mean, this is sort of was set in this period very very consciously to raise that question. It's a book about like events in terms of like the the context, the historical context. Uh, is keenly felt, I think, in in reading this novel. But it's definitely just like a book about a guy who is like navigating the society that he lives in right now. Yeah, I definitely that was definitely one of the things I enjoyed about the book, like the fact that it wasn't focused on major historical figures. They're kind of a little bit off to the side because I think often a lot of media about Rome a tries to do that. So we've already seen a ton of takes and. B, those takes are often bad. They're often done poorly. We have we have complained in the past. I actually, I, I don't know that we ever aired the episode where we talked about this the most. We, we recorded a test episode when we were first starting out that was about like a sort of general Roman history, like documentary thing on Netflix because it seemed like a good test case. And we talked fairly extensively about how much both of us hate the great man model of history in that and how frustrating it can be to see takes on history that focus so entirely on just like the big single figures and Roman like depictions of Roman history particularly this period of Roman history when there are a number of like capital G capital M great men floating around studies and like modern media that depicts this ancient this particular period of ancient history tends to fall into that mold, which can be very frustrating, especially for somebody like myself, who, I mean, first of all, I, you know, I am not the Roman historian of this partnership. I mean, I'm not a Roman historian either. Don't, (laughs) don't get it confused here. You know more about Rome than I do, though. Um, And so even beyond that, I've, I've always been much more interested in like so- social history and cultural history. This book is a gratify- quite gratifying uh, as a read in that way in that it, you know, it's just a story of a person's life and the society that he lives in. Do we want to give just like kind of the broad strokes of the plot so that as we discuss it, people know or I mean, I don't want to give too many spoilers because people might be listening to this um, episode off the top. 
Nick, do you have like a synopsis that you want to give or? Absolutely. Every writer should uh, at least be able to, to sort of give an elevator. The elevator pitch. Yes. But I, I, it's never been my strength. Uh, I go into too many details. Uh, the book is based on a, on a real person who has lived several centuries after I set my story. Uh, his life is sort of recorded on a stone in Algeria. And he actually was an engineer in the Roman army who built an aqueduct. He uh, it was going to go through a mountain, and uh, he set it up. He did all the surveying, and he left. He had to go off after that. He left the builders to, to do the job, and then he gets word, hysterical word from um, the builders. Oh, we we dug the tunnel, and they're not meeting in the center. Like they're digging from either side, and they're oh, not no. meeting in the center. And so he had to come all the way back. And on his way back, he was kidnapped by brigands, uh, held, and he escaped. So it was a whole odyssey, and he came back. He set everything straight, got the the um, the aqueduct to work, and he set up this stone to commemorate it. Well, my character sort of has the same background. Uh, uh, his name is Nonius Donatus. He, uh, though, lives in the first century BCE, and uh, he is has a reputation as a guy who can get things done. Agrippa, who is the Augustus's all uh, Octavian at that point, uh, right hand man. At that point, was had decided he was going to step back on the uh, cursus honorum and you know the, the the series of offices that rose in importance. Uh, he was going to take a step back and and be basically take charge of infrastructure. So it was infrastructure week in ancient Rome, um, and uh, he decides to hire Nonius to build an aqueduct to a slum, famous slum in uh, Rome called the Subura. Uh, it's called the Sabora, which is basically the undercity or the lower city. Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of been a crease that's between a bunch of hills in Rome. Now, you know, neighborhoods weren't exactly as as delineated as slum versus good back then, as much as, you know, we imagine. Uh, for instance, Julius Caesar lived in the Sabora, or at least his family traditionally did. So there were a number of rich families there. Yeah, though it's it was it was what today we might euphemistically call the inner city. <laughs> Right, right. And so uh, Nonius gets hired to, to, to build this aqueduct to an area that doesn't have any water service, and which seems like a straightforward job, just build an aqueduct, but he runs into all sorts of obstacles that have to do with the, uh, what, the, the state and the uh, contradictions of Roman society at the time. Some people don't want any water in their neighborhood uh, for reasons that, you know, either because of inconvenience of dealing with the construction or uh, suspicion about the motives behind the behind the project oppose him to their sabotage he has to deal with there's a rich guy who doesn't want his house tunneled under uh, he's an obstacle there's uh, he meets a woman who's the wife of this particular rich guy and sort of ends up with an affair with her uh, they're kind of in an open marriage the two uh, rich people and um, so that's a complication and then also he also falls in love with one of the basically uh, a ward of that family. Uh, and has a very uh, a deep relationship with her. So the story is basically a guy trying to get things done who runs into a number of obstacles and is changed by it. He's changed by it personally, mentally, physically, and uh, emotionally changed by what he goes through to build with them when you go to Rome today and you'll see a, whether it be a fountain house or a you know, and this sort of infrastructure is sort of, we take it as part of the fabric of the city, but I think what I try to show in the book is that, that there are people behind these things. And there are stories behind everyone. And 
we don't always we're not always conscious of that when we're looking at the physical structure. Um, but when you think about it, there probably are as deep and as meaningful stories behind a lot of these monuments as as there are monuments. Allison, have you been to Rome? You've been to Rome, right? I've been to Rome twice. Yeah, I, I've only been once. Oh, yeah, I was about to say I've spent far more time in other sort of other archaeological sites. Um, I've excavated at several places. So Rome is not somewhere I have a bunch of experience with. Um, obviously, like you study it in school, but I'm far more familiar with the archaeology of other places. Yeah. Which I know is confusing for a Roman archaeologist. <laughs> Rome was an empire, so. What I'm saying is, I mean, it's 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 equal. It's equally true of basically any center of Roman culture that you can you can talk about. I mean, whether it be in Britain, whether it be in Mesopotamia, it's all you know. There's all it all it all reflects that you know to to the same thing, you know. And in fact, what's interesting about Rome to me is how over time. The, the city of Rome itself, you know, was eventually um, abandoned as the capital, uh, was moved elsewhere. And so in, in a sense, you know, Rome gave birth to an empire and then was abandoned by that empire and became a backwater, yeah. uh, which is a very poignant sort of, you know, um, a poignant, you know, fate for an imperial city to become a backwater of its own territory. Yeah. I think I think one of the things I mean, as I said, I, I've only been to Rome once, but I've I've traveled other places in the Mediterranean, and the thing that always strikes me anytime I I go anywhere and um, like visiting Rome, one of the things that struck me, but also in sites that I visited in Greece and in and in Israel, um, is that I I especially love like normal quote unquote like normal city sites as compared to like monumental temples or theaters even like like the big kind of fancy you know artsy monuments the the monumental architecture doesn't strike me the same way as like you know the roman forum or um the the agora in athens or some of the more rundown city sites that i visited in in less traveled places in greece that are like not as like quote unquote impressive, but they're so obviously places people lived, you know, that they're places with infrastructure, as you were saying. And and I think that that's, I think that's something that comes through really strongly in this book is like, this is a book about a place that people live. It's a book about a street that people live on and do business on and what happens to the physical place and the changes that happen in the physical place because of this construction that Nonius is undertaking, affect the lives of all of the people who are living there. I don't know, it's quite interesting. Um, something that, that kind of caught me again and again as I was reading that like, it's a book about a construction project, but it's like also a book about all of these people's lives and how they're entangled with the place that they live and how trying to alter that place is going to affect all these people. Yeah, I, so I think the very, if I'm correct, the very, I think it's the very first scene where they're like, He's the main character is like in the rain under an awning and then his workers are like digging a trench for a pipe. And I work, um, I'm in working commercial archaeology, so I work on a construction site and it was just so it was really visceral because I'm like, oh, two thousand years later, yep, I this is a familiar scene to me, despite it being set two thousand years ago. Like this is a very I, I really appreciated that. It was it was very sort of 
the environment definitely felt very sort of familiar. Yeah, I think I'll, I think one other point I think is also that sort of emerges for me is that when, you know, Julia, you mentioned, you know, these are the street people lived on, it's a place where they lived and, and their, their lives were intertwined. I mean, you know, in the, in the, in an area, in an era well before electronic media or television, uh, even, you know, most kinds of mass media at all, people really lived where they lived. I mean, they were on their street. They were, uh, they were tended to be outside because most times the insides were kind of dingy and dark. And, you know, the weather is usually nice in Rome, so people were outside a lot. So people lived on their street. They saw the same faces every day. They gossiped with the same people. And it became, a, it was a community, and, and I think in a lot of senses that you see in some, some cities around the world that not so much in America anymore, alas, but I think, you know, when, when you go to some, some places, you know, in the Middle East or in Asia, and you're struck by, you know, people actually live in a community here. You know, they know each other. They know their neighbors. They're friends with their neighbors. They know their neighbors' kids. Socialize together. They have feasts together. They even worship together sometimes. Uh, to us, that's because I think in many ways, because of an atomized society that, that we don't even, it's, it's inconceivable. I barely know my neighbor. You know, I'm across the street. I say hello to him. But and I don't think I'm unusual <laughs> in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I my my door directly faces somebody else's, and I have never met him. <laughs> like, it seems crazy, but yeah, like people people don't live in communities in the same way, and and our lives don't our lives still affect the lives of other people, but they are not necessarily the people that we live right next to in the way that it was for so many people in antiquity. Well, you should tell that to my downstairs neighbors um, because <laughs> they. They definitely sure think that my walking around is disturbing their life. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. To kind of, I guess, like pivot slightly, this, uh, we've been talking about the kind of, the level of detail and like, like really like texture that you achieve, like narrative texture that you achieve in the setting of this novel a little bit um, kind of obliquely. Because you, you really do, you capture a lot of detail of what it was like to live in Rome, to live in the Sibura, to live in Rome in general and walk around the city. And you said you've been there, but obviously there's going to be like more research than just having visited a place involved, especially it has been, you know, 2000 years. Um, so I wondered if, if you could elaborate a little bit on like how you came to some of these some of this texture and like um the way that you do research for writing a novel like this um i'm a writer myself and i write fantasy mostly so i know how much work goes into creating world building details but i don't have to like look stuff up for mine <laughs> i just make it up <laughs> right the disadvantage of running historical you, you've yeah. got to have at least some plausible not only plausible but I think if you make it too obvious that it's you've done the research, it sort of bogs the story down to the point where you know we you know the reader doesn't really care. They want to hear a story, mm -hmm. uh, so um, you've got to sort of do it carefully. Totally, uh, I I think that's one of the things that did stand out to me reading this book is like you do have this incredible level of historical detail and like it reads as very well researched to me as somebody who's at least passingly familiar with a lot of this stuff but it really reads like you're writing from the inside of Nonius's head or Amaris's head or whoever whoever's point of view you're in 
And like the detail comes through as just like the things that somebody notices and thinks about and does as somebody who lives in that time period, rather than feeling like the narrator is just telling us details about the world while the characters move around in it, which is quite impressive to me. Usually for for the books I've done, usually it's maybe a year or so of research before I start writing the book itself. And this usually uh, involves going to a place that's sort of, that's part of the setting, sort of visiting with it, sort of becoming a part of it. I spent a month in Rome uh, at the American Academy there as a guest, and that was a wonderful experience. Obviously, you know, places like Pompeii and Herculaneum are, are uh, places that you can sort of see a little more detail about uh, ordinary life back then. I've also done extensively, had to do research for the Greek books, and there are some qualities there that are shared uh, or continuous through that I could draw upon. And of course, the, the library research, reading. In this case, um, there are several texts that you have to look at, you know, for ancient engineering and waterworks like Frontinus and Vitruvius. And of course, the, the background about the real Nonius. Yeah, I mean, basically also, I think at some point, I think, you know, this is my 10th book, nine of which are novels. You, you sort of, you sort of, you learn how to let the characters speak. You learn how to let the, the place speak. Those places do speak to, you know, they, they determine events, they shape events by their physical layout, by their, the qualities of their of their layout. And you, it's, it's about becoming attuned to those things. I know that sounds vague, but, you know, when you're writing it, it sort of, you know, when, you know, when you're talking about, a you know, a, a narrow street in the middle of Rome, people digging up shit. <laughs> I, I, if you can imagine the inconvenience to uh, to people who are trying to navigate those streets. So that naturally leads to politics and resentments and uh, that, you know, are very familiar to people today dealing with construction. And, you know, so that, you know, things sort of follow upon themselves and you're allowing yourself to sort of think through the situation you know, how would they respond to that? And how would my character respond to the fact that people are resisting what he thinks is an obvious good, public good, bringing water? Who can be against bringing water to an area that doesn't have any water? I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd to him. Um, you know, it's like it's sort of like uh, today. We say, well, how can somebody be against getting a vaccine? It's absurd. Of course you, want to, you don't want to get an illness. But people, you know, in the historical moment have their reasons or whatever, you know, based on whatever background they have whatever perspective they're coming from. And so, um, yeah, everything you can imagine actually does happen and every point of view is there. So, um, yes, extensive research. Rome, in a sense, though, was something I've lived for a long time, so it didn't require as much research as, say, starting from scratch. So, you know, it, 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 to me, it was sort of Rome was like almost coming home in some ways uh, to a place that I was familiar with. You, you mentioned that... So you've written 10 books, or this is your 10th book, nine of which are novels. Um, your your one nonfiction uh, book is a, a book called Circumference, which is about also about kind of ancient science and engineering and stuff. Um, did were you were you drawing on some of that working on this? Um, I mean, obviously, it's a different time period, different sort of situation, because that's about Eratosthenes and the uh, the circumference of the Earth, which 
I, which I actually did a paper on in undergrad for a science elective. It's a great, it's a really interesting um, sort of story. So if anybody's interested in, you know, learning about how we have in fact known that the earth was round for, you know, more than 2000 years, take that flat earthers. Maybe check it, maybe check that one out. But, um, you know, it's, it's similar, some, some similar uh, veins of stuff. Um, were you drawing on some of that research? writing this book? Absolutely. I mean, particularly in response in regard to ancient attitudes towards science and um, the practical professions. I mean, basically the the established sort of line is that uh, Roman, the people that we read the most in Roman, you know, from Roman um, times tend to be literate upper class or close to upper class people who had kind of a, a contempt for practical they thought it was sort of beneath the uh, the interest of, of a, a refined gentleman to get his hands dirty uh, with practical stuff. Uh, that's sort of the the cliche. Mm. Uh, recent recent more recent work, you know, I'm mean recent in the last fifty years or something, is showing that actually that's a co- more complicated uh, picture. Yeah. We've we, we've dug up um, things like the Antikythera mechanism, which showed that there was a lot of sophisticated machine make, make building then and this episode of, of uh, nonius for instance showing his pride and being able to actually dig this aqueduct showed on some level of the society people were proud of like what they accomplished you know practically it isn't you know on a practical level eratosthenes was a he lived in the th- you know the third century bc in alexandria and he was both broke that mold in the sense that he occupied his time with things like measuring the earth and practical geography. In fact, he invented the word geography. Uh, but he also did literary criticism and history and, and poetry. You know, he talked about everything because this is what a gentleman did. You know, these refined arts are a little more elevated. So, uh, yes, absolutely. You know, it's not exactly the same because we're, when we're talking about a Hellenistic a city like Alexandria and, and Rome were different, you know, separated by centuries. Um, but there were definitely some similar themes there. Yeah, I guess going back to some of the sort of technological stuff and being sort of proud of technological achievements, there's a point in the book where I think it's Nonius possibly says something about Rome's sort of most important technological development being concrete. <laughs> That was, oh, yeah. that was very that was very exciting to me um, because I guess co- concrete is something you think of as being very modern, but like this is of course the thing that allowed Romans to build certain structures like domes, which didn't really exist before the Roman period. So I like I like pointing that out because I think you know in in looking at grand sort of buildings or other sort of Roman achievements, there's a there's a tendency to not necessarily recognize some of the technological developments that are really important to the way we live our, live our lives today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, that was definitely, it came out of some of my archaeological background. And and it's great that we get all this information about like engineering and, and sort of like we get a lot of these details through Nonius, who is genuinely excited about this stuff. There's, there's this excellent passage uh, on page like 4041 of, of what you sent us. 
that reads, Nonius had gotten up less than an hour before, but he was already tired. Though he was capable of being socially adept, human conversation beyond the subjects of surveying, concrete, and channel construction quickly drained him. He could barely survive 15 minutes of dinner with his relatives, and less with the kin of the girls his, his mother arranged for his indefinitely postponed marriage. But he had once argued for two hours with a man in a tavern about the practicality of installing an inverted siphon under the forum. Which I, like recorded into my notes document and then made a sub bullet that just says relatable in all capital letters as somebody who can go on at length about the subject of my interest and is absolutely drained by having to make small talk at times. I mean, I don't know, I'm pretty extroverted, but I just was like, yes. And and because we're getting all this information about like engineering and concrete through Nonius, who is so interested and like is so knowledgeable and passionate about it, it makes it very interesting in the way it's conveyed. And also like, it's just like, it's part of the story, which is, makes it fun to read. So. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like, oh, this is how this Roman construction works. It's very, yeah, it, it I would agree with Julia. And then it, fe- it feels like very much part of the story and the way the information is conveyed. Yeah, that's that's gratifying to hear. Also definitely want to, want to com- communicate to your listeners that, the stuff about the engineering and the and uh, and his uh, passion for it is is also sort of more of the background to the human story that I try to tell. Yes. With yeah. characters, there's a lot of interpersonal politics, sexual politics that I try to sort of tease out and play out in the book too. Um, so lest and everyone think it's, this is about engineering no it's not just a book about logistics it is partly a book about logistics and i like enjoyed that very much but i i mean so speaking uh, a little bit to that that those those sort of personal the, the social politics and the sexual politics as you say and speaking a little bit more to what allison and i frequently take um allison and i frequently take a, an interest in issues of gender sexuality um race the representations of these things like the diversity of the representation of the ancient world in modern media and i mean in my opinion this this book does a pretty good job with that stuff like you you capture the diversity of the city of Rome. I mean, you we really like Rome by this point was an empire and there was there were people of all backgrounds of all sorts living in the city conducting their lives at varying statuses and so on. You know, we have we have slave characters, we have female characters, we have you know, characters who today we would say like, oh, a person of color. Well, they're just like, you know, they're people from other parts of the Mediterranean, whatever like you 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 get a lot of breadth and uh those those differences in people's lives and and in the way that they think also comes through in the page i mentioned briefly earlier that we have uh, nonius isn't the only um point of view character there are like other points of view in the novel particularly stand out to me is the character amaris who is uh um as you said a, a ward of the house of of um quintus at all whose whose house nonius is trying to um uh, undermine. <laughs> yes, undermine. Quite literally, uh, uh, who is a very interesting. She's a really interesting character. Um, and you know, like, despite what the ancient authors would have you believe, women have in fact always had interior lives of their own. And uh, it's astounding to me that you need to say that. It's funny. It's really hilarious that that the idea of women having internal lives is like a a radical 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, it's I I feel like anytime even even when talking about reception, it's like it's just a reminder that like the things that these stories draw on often don't do a very good job with the women present in them. Many ancient authors really didn't spare thought for the women that they encountered in their daily lives and being totally honest, we have encountered a number of pieces of modern reception that don't spare a thought for the interior lives of the women that they depict, or if so, they, they're they very two-dimensional. Um, so it was quite refreshing to read a novel set in the ancient Mediterranean that is chock full of, like, diverse female characters who have lives of their own um, and, thought and like, their own motives and complications. It was, it was quite refreshing. Oh, yeah, totally. And one thing this did sort of remind me is that you know, even when ancient texts did actually have some reflection of the interior world of of women, sometimes modern media goes out of its way to ignore that. Um, (laughs) I think we have far too much of a tendency to view ourselves as progressive when we're still having some of the same problems and conversations that people people were having 2000 years ago. Yeah. It can be, yeah, it, it can be a bit of a thing. But yeah, this, I mean, the relationship between um, first Nonius and Calixta, who is the, the mistress of the house, and then also Nonius and Amaris are like, they're quite central relationships. And like, these two women are very different from each other. And also from several of the other women who appear, um, Sibylle, the the sex worker who he, he kind of encounters on the street, um, who delivers one of my favorite lines actually about how, uh, what is, she, what I, I wrote this one down to, uh, my dear Nonius, in a place like the Sabura, equality never affects everyone equally, which was like, yes, go off. Uh, <laughs> so it's really like, you know, these, these people are all very different from each other and their relationships with each other and with Nonius um, inform a lot of the plot of the book in a way that's quite, gratifying like you have a very as well as the quite complex texture of of you know historical world building that you've done there's also a very complex uh set of characters and character relationships going on um here absolutely i mean i i I, so obviously i think if you're going to give a full sort of picture of a or at least even an impression of, of a place and a time leaving out half the humanity is going to be a very problematic decision but again, it wasn't, you know, the decision, there was no, I wasn't making a point here, or, you know, sort of saying, see, you know, here I can do, I can write about women or women existed back then. You know, it, it's sort of, to me, it comes with the territory and that's, uh, that's really all there is to it. And I think a lot of, and a lot of, of the media that I think people are very exposed to now, particularly in movies or television, I think some of the miniseries have done a little better. Like I've said, series like Rome uh, tries to get sort of a, a sort of a cross section, and some of and some of those major characters are women. Yeah, but you could have a movie like Three Hundred, where I think there's only really one female character in there, a major female character, and her, her basically her her sole virtue is being as tough as as a guy. You know, it's sort yeah. of like she's a guy's woman, uh, a woman's guy, whatever. <laughs> and so, you know, I think one one of the things I think I had to I've had to deal with though is 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 some of the previous books like uh, Isle of Stone, which dealt with Spartan women, a couple of Spartan women. Then you know even if you try to sort of present that full complexity, and by, by complexity I mean women. Some women back then were complicit in power structures that oh, yeah. that 
And so when you present that, you know, then you get people attacking you because, you know, you're not giving a politically correct version yeah, of because, women's lives. Yeah. Because it's not like feminist or whatever. And it's like, no, like women, first of all, feminism didn't exist back then. Second of all, like women even today can be complicit in, you know, the power structures that exist in our society and even actively work to uphold them because the truth of the matter is some women did benefit from the way society worked. And also like, sometimes it's just not worth it. <laughs> and, and to like, to like try to, you know, push back or whatever, but also just like, the best kind of representation is, as you're saying, the kind that's not like trying hard to be diverse because a sort of organic diversity is going to be more, it's going to be more representative of actual people in their actual lives than one that's very like tokenistic or some such. Um, you don't need to check all the boxes. You just need to like write about human beings and, and you do manage to get that breadth of human humanity in there without feeling like you're trying super hard to like be diverse rah rah i will also say that it's just not good writing to have two-dimensional female characters you know like it's not even right. making a political point it's just to have any sort of two-dimensional character is is really not very good writing <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, you know, your side characters are your side characters. Obviously, not every character in a book is going to get a lot of development, and that's fine. But like, when when somebody is, is touted as a, a main character and then is, you know, a flat kind of stereotype of their gender, it, it gets a little annoying. All this to say, you don't do that. <laughs> this book does not do that. Uh, so it was quite refreshing in that way. Um, can I ask, are there are there particular like sources that you go to or um, for, you know, Roman women or for other other populations, slaves, foreigners that that end up represented in here? Um, these are these are obviously harder populations to find stuff about. Yes, I mean, um there was a book recently published called Invisible Romans that I thought was quite good. That was, I read that several years ago before I started the book, but it definitely had an impression on me about, made an impression on me about, about many other people who tend to vanish from the elite sources, including many women. Of course, there's, you know, there's been a number of studies over the years, you know, you know classicists taking from a feminist point of view or women's history point of view or social history that have been very uh, useful uh, but again, uh, in many ways, it's sort of it's almost like a no-brainer that 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 women were there. They were they were active. They were making decisions they, that affected people, that affected events. Uh, maybe not uh, in an obvious way always, but in an important way. And if you're gonna if you're gonna capture the the uh, the sort of fabric of events and of a time, absolutely have to be fully fleshed out. I think also it's. In terms of my own background, I had a number of strong women in my family who helped me, who sort of gave me an appreciation for books and history that were, you know, really affected me. They're important to me. They affected me. And I think there probably were a number of Roman elites, maybe they don't write about it in their books, but who had a mother or a sister or a, a rel female relative who shaped them. Mm -hmm. uh, they, didn't, they didn't acknowledge it necessarily. Maybe it wasn't politically you know, sort of a done thing back then to do that, but it was there. It, it, it happened. And, you know, I think it was important to capture that. Yeah. I mean, actually one example that I can think of, of this happening, which is not 
necessarily super common in particularly works of Roman literature is Cicero, I think, has written, wrote quite extensively about his depression after the death of his daughter. And that's one of those like brief glimpses you get of especially like important Roman political figures having these sort of very like emotional familial feelings towards people. Right. I mean, there was uh, for uh, Antigone's Wake, Pericles is a character I talk about. It's not Roman, it's Greek, but and his relationship with Aspasia, who was a intellectual force in her time. Some feel that she probably had a hand in writing a number of his speeches, and they are sort of partnership, which I think Pericles was not didn't really hide. I mean, he was acknowledged. You know, it was widely acknowledged that she was a formidable person. Trouble is, I think. In a case like hers, um, that gets bound up with sexuality about her, you know, she was beautiful, she was seductive, and therefore she's threatening. But I think there's not not any doubt that she was his intellectual equal and maybe one of the reasons that he that he achieved what he achieved because of that of that intellectual partnership and mutual stimulation that came from two people, smart people who are bouncing off each other energy and ideas. Yeah, yeah. I guess I have I have one more like kind of more general question. You seem to have a fairly broad range of interest in terms of the history that you write about. What tends to like inspire you as to a specific incident to write about? Like is it just like you come across something and then you decide to write about it or like I'm just I'm just curious about that. Maybe it's my own writer brain wanting to know where other writers get their ideas. It's it's um I don't know, there's sort of a, a sort of special sort of circumstances that, that sort of go into the kernel of an idea for a book. I mean, uh, often it's uh, an interesting incident that that uh, surprises me, but also has enough of, a, of an element of mystery that there's enough to fill in as a novelist. That it's not a full anecdote that's complete from beginning to end that leaves no room for creative interpretation. So, like in the case of when I wrote about the Greeks on the uh, the Spartan soldiers on the island, you know, we do have a record of that in Thucydides, you know, a historian's view of that. But what actually happened on that island fascinated me. What what they guys talk about? How did they survive on this island for all that time with with no supplies or minimal supplies? How did the politics between them work out? Um, what was it like maintaining them in a blockade? You know, having to roll around this island for weeks and months you know what was it like to be a soldier and uh, 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 an oarsman in the in the Athenian navy and having to go through this sort of you know duty for a long periods of time so yes it's 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 hard to put your finger on exactly you know but something that's interesting something that's surprising something that leaves an element of mystery and room for interpretation i think things are, are definitely things that are part what makes me want to write about a, a period. But yes, um, I would say th- those are probably the things that I look for. Nice. Yeah, I, of course, I've, I've gone ahead and asked you the question that I hate getting asked about my own writings. Like, wow, where do you get your ideas? It's like, man, I don't know. It's just how my brain works. I wish I could tell you because then I could make it happen on command. Yeah, inspiration yeah. Is, 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 inspiration is, yeah, it's, it's yeah. elusive. One never knows when the, uh, the muses are going to come to visit. <laughs> Yeah, and also, you know, it's challenging because, you know, you have to not only be inspired, you know, for that five minutes when, oh my gosh, I want to write about this, but also for the next two or three years, yeah. it has to sort of interest you. 
and you have to sort of have a sense and you know the seat of your pants is like can this sustain my interest much less a reader who i I don't even know i i heard a keynote once uh, this is like a total sidetrack i i heard a keynote at a writer's conference once when i was a teenager about how the the guy was talking about how he always uses what he calls the refrigerator door technique on his ideas because he's the kind of person who always gets ideas staring into the refrigerator at three o'clock in the morning and what you have to do is close the refrigerator door on the idea and if you get and go back to bed and if you get up in the morning and open the fridge and the idea is still there then it's probably going to stick around long enough to write it (laughs) i could definitely see you know i could definitely see that my mental processes being sort of like this like a refrigerator like container that (laughs) if if something sticks around it's probably worth gotta shove it to the back of the fridge and if you come back in a couple months and it's not moldy yet you can probably write it. <laughs> I definitely, I, I have to do that myself. Allison, do you have any final questions uh, before we do some like final impressions of the book? Any hot takes, any like sparkly things that you want to bring up? Do you have any petty gripes that, that are like non-rude and can therefore be shared with our friend, the author? <laughs> Well, so I I don't have any petty gripes because usually my petty gripes are about historical accuracy. And frankly, Nick, I think you you know far more about the period, like the specifics of this period than I do because clearly there was a lot of detailed research that went into this. Yeah, I, I feel like we've said pretty much everything. Like I really enjoyed the fact that this book was about a sort of, was sort of on a small scale about a particular sort of like middle class and lower class people. I definitely, the historical accuracy doesn't feel like it's pushing its way in and it's getting in the way of the book. But if you know stuff about the ancient world, there's definitely little things that you're like, oh, I recognize that. I recognize this. For example, there was a joke about the ablative, which I thought was very funny. If for people who don't know, that's a, it's a Latin grammatical joke. So yeah. Probably probably not of interest to a lot of people, but I thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely I made a note about this too, because um, I I think I came to the joke the ablative joke shortly after you did Allison as we were both reading, and because you'd mentioned it to me, so I I noticed it and I made a note that was like, yeah, this this novel is like incredibly dense in descriptive detail and like historical illusions it'll totally transport you but even an expert is unlikely to catch all of the references and like that's okay it's not inaccessible even if you're not familiar with the period i'm quite unfamiliar with this period of roman history as well and i didn't feel like i felt like i was i was quite transported there even though i didn't always understand the references it was like fine uh, yeah i think it's you know what i think what's important to remember is also I think many times we don't even really understand our own time. I mean, I live I live now, you know, in in, in 2021, and I understand some things, uh, but I don't understand everything, and a lot of things puzzle me, and I, things I don't understand. And I think a lot of times we don't realize. I think as historical authors, we we tend to say, well, if you if you're there at the time and you're a witness, you should know everything that's going on, and you don't. I know a lot of people back then really had no clue what was going on. They couldn't identify a statue in a niche, even though they lived in the period, and this is, you know, necessarily so. Putting yourselves in the shoes of those people definitely was uh, was something I was trying to aim for. Definitely. Let me see. Did I have any other notes that I really want to bring up? Uh, the last note that I took just says, "Love how I took no notes in the entire last hundred pages because I was too absorbed." So, congrats on that one. And I'm glad that we've managed to like do this without talking too much about like spoilers because I I think. 
you you will be absorbed in the first half because uh, there's all of this like interesting detail and then you'll be absorbed in the back half because you will be like oh my god what's going on what's going to happen <laughs> so it's a good read i guess uh this isn't really a gripe, but I mean, I'll I'll state for the record that like you know this is an this is an adult novel. There is some sex in this novel, and I, I this is just like me personally. I don't think I've ever read like an adult literary fiction novel of any kind where I've been like, yeah, that was a great sex scene. But of course, I come from a background of reading a lot of romance novels, which has uh, you know perfected that particular genre. So I'm very picky, but also. You know, a number of the sex scenes in this novel are from the point of view of Amaris, who is in this very uncomfortable position and in a very uncomfortable relationship with her own sexuality and the the sex that she is involved in. And so some of the scenes reading them and going Ugh, was like, yeah, that's kind of it, it felt like that was the point a little bit because she's not really having a good time either. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it does stuff for character and it does stuff for the story. So like. I've read literary fiction where I'm like, why are these people having sex right now? Uh, but this was not one of those books. I was like, yes, good. Okay, I get it. Am I particularly enjoying reading this scene? No, but it feels like a purposeful discomfort. So that's like good and fine. But it's also worth noting, um, particularly since I, I know that some of the other people who listen to this podcast uh, are my friends and uh, my peers who like myself, read romance novels, read fan fiction, which is also the bastion of, of well-written erotica, may I say, and are therefore, like myself, inclined to be judgmental of these things. But like, don't be. No, it's good. Go read the book anyways. Uh <laughs> not that Julia would know anything about fan fiction. She's not a prolific <laughs> fan fiction writer. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not outing anybody right now. Listen, I have outed myself as a fan fiction reader and author on this podcast several times now. And our last episode, or two episodes ago, actually, because we just posted our episode about um, A Thousand Ships, but two episodes ago uh, was about Supernatural, which is like one of the most notorious fandoms of all time. We talked about fandom a lot in that episode. So if you want to listen to me absolutely out myself as a fandom person, go listen to that one. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I guess my my final impression is like this this was an enjoyable read. It was a good book. I would recommend it now that it is recently released out into the world as of the release of this episode. And yeah, last but not least, then uh, Nick, where can our listeners find you? Uh, yeah, my books are available um, on Amazon uh, easily, and you can find me uh, on Instagram at. Uh, at Nicastro Media. I've also got a uh, Facebook page, Books by Nicholas Nicastro, and a website, www.nicastrobooks.com. And I'm always love to hear from readers. It's, it's sort of really gratifying. I think one of the greatest Christmas presents I ever got was when a soldier in Iraq who was deployed to Iraq wrote to me about I Love Stone and how much he enjoyed it. And uh, that is a rare uh, privilege to get it from someone who's actually, you know, in that going through that kind of experience. And also, I would also invite, you know, if those who, who, who respond to the book, love it or hate it, write those reader reviews, because that's the lifeblood today of, you know, of, you know nobody's reviewing books really much anymore in, in major media, newspapers, you know, certainly TV news, they don't review books anymore. So reader reviews are really it, uh, blog reviews also. So... If you um, love it or hate it, 
write write a review, get your opinion out there because that we really need to hear from you, the readers. Reader reviews, blog posts, and lovingly made podcasts. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nick, and uh, best of luck in all your future writing ventures. We hope that the launch of this book goes well for you. And yeah, thank you so, like, thank you again. Just, it was really, this was really fun. We've never done anything like this before, so. Well, uh, I enjoyed it as well, Julia. Uh, fun talking to you. Thanks for, uh, Thanks for being interested in the book, reading it. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode will be on the third Percy Jackson novel, The Titan's Curse. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did. <laughs>